And it's not just Christians who think that. Jews think this as well. Tim Keller rightly says about this passage, about the story we're going to look at tonight, um, this really is the story that is the, at the heart of, um, of Israel. It's at the heart of what makes them who they are. This is also the passage that for Christians is really about the central act of worship. The new Passover is the central act of Christian worship. So tonight we're looking at the Passover. God finally bringing uh, the final of the ten plagues and what God calls his people to do um, even in the midst of that plague. That's what we're going to look at tonight. It's a story really that's all, it's all really about the bloody sacrifice of a helpless victim. It's one of the most uh, gripping, I think, pictures of God's deliverance in the Old Testament, pointing to the deliverance that will come through Christ. It's a story that gives just a powerful picture of deliverance. Uh, and it's a story, I think, even more importantly, that calls us not just to know about the story, not just say, oh, that's interesting. It's a story that calls us to gaze upon the Lamb to gaze upon the Lamb. So let's um, look at the passage. It's in Exodus chapter 11. If you have a Bible, you can follow that, or if you have the, the sheet that I handed out, we're going to start with Exodus 11. We're going to read a few verses from there, then we're going to read some of the verses of Exodus 12. One of the problems in doing the Old Testament is there's always just huge amounts of text to read. So I'm going to read some selected verses rather than every verse here. Exodus 11, starting at verse 1. Now, and, and the now, source of the context is there have been nine plagues. Still, Pharaoh has hardened his heart, and he's refused to let Israel go. Now, says in chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague to, on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the, excuse me, and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. Now jump down to chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community in Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, 
They are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass throughout Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And now jump down to verse 24. Pick up a couple more verses. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a sobering passage. And um, Lord, it is appropriate that we would respond to this passage in worship. Help us to bow in our hearts, to you, to this revelation of who you are and of how you bring deliverance to your people. May we gaze upon it. May we bow before it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) God has been building up to this final plague. I really... You know, if if you're thinking about where are we going tonight, here's where we're going. We're going to look at this powerful picture of deliverance in some detail. We're also, though, going to see here that there's a serious call to faith. There are some things about this plague that are different than the other nine. And one of those is the way it engages the people's faith in a way maybe the other nine didn't. Then we also are going to gaze at the Lamb. We have here an invitation to behold the Lamb. And adore him. So that's what we get a powerful picture, a serious call to faith, and an invitation to behold the Lamb and gaze upon him. How do we see this powerful picture? Um, what you need to understand, right, this is now the 10th plague. I didn't talk about all the plagues, um, but what you need to understand here is God has been building up to this final plague, and now it has finally arrived. God had said way back in Exodus chapter 4. That if Egypt did not let Israel, his firstborn, and he uses that very language. God says about Israel that the nation is my firstborn son. God said that if the gods of Egypt, if Egypt, the Pharaoh, remember, who is a god in Egyptian understanding. If he did not let 
God's people go so that they could worship him, that he would strike down the firstborn of Egypt. And now the time has come. The time has come. But he adds some interesting things to his revelation of what's going on and what he's trying to teach them in this. The time has come. But now he adds this important idea that Israel, too, must be covered by the blood if they are to escape the destruction of the firstborn. And that's a very important detail. We're going to talk about that um, down here a little bit later. But what's going on here? God is showing that this picture of deliverance is, is really twofold. I know that when we think about this story, we tend to think, this is a great story about how God delivered Israel, God's people, from their enemies, the Egyptians. It's a wonderful picture of God's mercy to do that. But what you need to understand is what the Lord wants them to be able to do, he says, is to worship him. And what God says is there are actually two barriers to his people being able to worship him. Egypt is the first. Egypt will not let them go to worship God. But the second barrier is Israel's own sin and unbelief. God is going to deal with both of those barriers so that his people can worship him. Right? This tenth plague, you see, deals with Egypt. The destroyer comes and Egypt lets God's people go. But the Passover meal... Chapter 12 says that it's not enough for God to strike down the Egyptians. For you to be able to worship me, it's vital that your sin be dealt with as well. Do you see this? The plague, the destroyer coming, sets them free from Egypt. The blood on the door protects them from the destroyer. So why the special meal? Why the special meal? I mean, isn't it all that they need? They need to be delivered from Egypt. They need to be, have their sin covered over so that they won't be destroyed. But then God adds one more thing. You need to celebrate a special meal. Why? Why not just smear some blood on the door, wait inside until it's safe, and then get the heck out of Dodge? Why? Because God had always intended to do more than merely deliver them from Egypt. He'd intended even to do more than merely cover over their sin. God had decided long ago that these were his people who he wanted to be his very own, that he wanted to have in an intimate relationship where he would be their God and they would be his people. And the best way in the biblical culture to express this is to have table fellowship with somebody, to have a meal together. So what God is saying is, it's, you need to be delivered from Egypt, this external enemy. You need to have your own sin covered over by blood. But all of that is so that we can sit down and enjoy a meal together in rich, intimate fellowship. God had said back, actually, in chapter 6, verse 6 of Exodus, that I want to take these people to be my people. This is really really huge. It's, it's really the difference between religion and Christianity. Do you, do you understand this? 
religion just deals with how can I, how can I get right with God and how can I you know, have him not be mad at me and sort of get off my back. But Christianity says that what God has always intended is so much more than that. He created us in a relationship with him in a garden where his people would walk with him in the cool of the day, enjoying each other's presence. And God has not backed down from that plan and that purpose. And he reiterates that plan and that intention in what he does here in this picture. Another way to talk about this is it's vital for him to teach his people that for them to sit down and eat with him, there needs to be a substitutionary sacrifice. It's vital for him to teach them that it's not, your only need is not just justification to be made right with God. God wants more than that. He wasn't, see, justification makes you God's friend and no longer his enemy. But God wants to do more than that. He wants to make you his very family. And families eat together, right? That's the picture here. God wants more than just to make you from his enemies to his friends. He wants to sit down and eat with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to enjoy your company. And he wants you to enjoy his company. Isn't that beautiful, right? See, the blood has to cover the Israelites, no doubt. It's one of the things that sort of gets brought out in this 10th plague. It's not enough just for you to be delivered from Israel or from Egypt. The destroyer, you see, is God himself. And God says this to Moses. I will come myself this time. In all the other plagues, Moses had some role to play. He had to do something. Like, for instance, with the Nile turning to blood. He had to touch his staff to the water. In this plague, God tells Moses and Aaron... Stand back and watch what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to do what's required. I'm going to come as the destroyer. And this Israel, Israel does not automatically get covered by this. The blood must be put on your house, on your door. But God himself is committing to do what needs to be done for his people to be able to worship him. And fellowship with him, right? A substitutionary death is at the heart of what God is showing them here. It's fascinating. The very last verse that I read says this. There was not a house without someone dead. And you think about it, it's exactly true. Either there's an Egyptian firstborn or there's a dead lamb. There's not a house without someone dead. In every house, someone died that night. That's the picture. Either you face judgment yourself and face death yourself, or someone has to take it in your place. There's no other way. There's no other way to meet God in his judgment. It's heavy, right? I I mean, the only way to explain what's going on, I mean, think about this. The thing that will protect you from the destroyer, God says, the destroyer that can go into Pharaoh's house, can go into the depths of the dungeon. The only thing that will protect you is a lamb. <laughs> Tim Keller says, the only thing that will protect you is fl- this fluffy little lamb, right? That's kind of crazy. I mean, you've heard the story so many times, you don't really think about how odd that is. The destroyer, God himself, is going to come 
And, and, and he can reach into every house, no matter how high-born or low-born, no matter where you are, you can't escape his presence unless you take refuge in a lamb, right? But that's exactly what's going on. You see, the only way that this can make any sense is if you understand that the lamb is pointing to the true lamb whose blood will cover us one day. Paul actually talks about this in Romans chapter 3, the book of Romans in the New Testament. He says, how is it that people in the Old Testament could be saved? He said, it's not like the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. But he said, when that, when that blood and those sacrifices were offered, it was an opportunity for God's people to put their faith in God's provision. And Paul says in Romans 3 that God had left unpunished those sins committed beforehand. But now in Christ, justice has been met. In other words, God postponed punishing the Israelites for their sin. The blood did not absolve them of their sin. The blood of any animal could never do that. This is one of the things the book of Hebrews says that the Israelites should have gotten this message because they had to offer the sacrifices over and over and over and over again. If the sacrifices really worked to deal with their sin, you wouldn't have to do it over and over and over again. So built into the ceremony was the point that this isn't really working. It's pointing to something that God is going to bring. Right? It's pointing to something that God is going to bring. And God says, actually, in Romans 3, that God postponed punishing the sins of his people until Jesus came. And on the cross, he suffered the punishment for all his people, both those who had come before and those who will come after. He was punished in their place. Substitution is at the heart of what the Bible understands deliverance to be all about, right? See, notice this. God didn't just pass over his people who deserve to die for their sins and unbelief that one time in Egypt. Notice what else he does. He calls them to celebrate a meal as a constant reminder of his mercy and to lead them to the true lamb who would one day come, Jesus, the lamb of God. Now, I know some of you might wonder, I don't want to take a long time with this, but I think I should say something about this. Why, why, the, why did the firstborn have to die anyway? This is some sort of barbaric custom that we should look at with disgust. Uh, I want to say something about this because I I know for a lot of modern people, the idea, I mean, it's Pharaoh that hardened his heart. Why does his son die? That really bothers modern people, right? You bet it does because we're modern individualistic people. Tim Keller has a helpful way of talking about this. He um, makes reference to a book by a, a Jewish scholar who teaches at Harvard. Um, The book is called The Death and the Resurrection of a Beloved Son. And it's a book that actually deals with Abraham and his call to offer up Isaac to the Lord. I think probably all of you that have taken Old Testament have heard that about that passage and have probably wrestled with it. What does that mean? What is God doing? Um, Here's what's interesting to understand about that passage. The thing that we think um, is so offensive is not actually what would have bothered Abraham so much. In other words, in, in... the ancient world, in the culture that the Bible is written into, they're very collectivist in the way they understand things. People, don't, people in the ancient world don't have, at least in the ancient Near East, don't have individual aspirations for themselves. 
They don't think of themselves even as individuals. They think about their family. They have aspirations for their family. They think in terms of if the father son, father sins, the firstborn has to answer for it. This is well documented. And that's why this Jewish historian, he says, you modern Western people don't understand this story at all because you approach it as Western individualistic people. But what really what really was going on is Abraham is he understood when God said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, he understood that now God, who has every right to call for him to pay his debt to God, has now said the time has come to pay your debt. You see, in other words, what, what, what this guy is saying is that your hope as a person in the ancient world is for your family to flourish. And Abraham has been promised that his family will flourish And yet now God is saying, you need to pay your debt. It's time for you to pay your debt for your sin. Abraham had sinned grievously against God. Unbelief is well documented in the Bible, right? And and so what he understands the dilemma to be, what this Jewish historian is saying, is that the dilemma is that Abraham is trying to figure out how God can righteously, appropriately call for me to pay my debt by offering my firstborn, and at the same time, Keep his promises to my family. Right? This is is what you need to understand. So, the cultural background helps us understand that the reason Abraham is so heartbroken is not just because God has just out of the blue, like, what a weird request. What a weird request that God would say, offer your firstborn. People in the ancient world offered their firstborn to pacify the gods all the time. The point is, people understood that what I do, my family will have to answer for. You actually see some other places in the Bible where it talks about this thing. Where Achan, for instance, violates the, 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 the word of the Lord, right? And uh, Joshua, and he ends up, his whole family is put to death. This is very different than the way we think about things. We think about, if I sinned, I should answer for it. And my family should have nothing to do with it. That's not the way people in the ancient world think about So, what you need to understand is, God is saying here... Firstborn, the firstborn is owed to me. I can call the debt. Israel, Israel deserves to, ha- to, to have their firstborn taken from them in payment for their debt. Egypt deserves it because they've hardened their heart. They've oppressed my people. Israel has rejected my deliverer Moses. They've tur- you know, responded to my word with unbelief and criticism. But what God is saying is, I am going to to redeem the firstborn, the one that's owed to me. That's the principle here. The firstborn is owed to God. And if the firstborn is not going to be taken, there has to be a substitute. There has to be a substitute. And the only substitute is the lamb, right? The the, the meal actually teaches this point. You know this? It's fascinating. You know, I, I read some of the detail about the meal. One of the interesting details is that the lamb must be fully consumed. Not only must the lamb be fully consumed, but if you don't have enough people in your family to fully consume the meal, you should invite another family, but you need to carefully calculate how much each person will eat. You try, God is basically saying there needs to be as much as possible a one-to-one correspondence to impress upon the people the idea that this is a substitute for you. You see, here's the point. Remember what God said about Israel? You are my firstborn son. The lamb comes to substitute for God's firstborn son, for the entire family. 
The entire family is God's firstborn son, and they have to have a substitute. And so there's all these details that are, that are fascinating. They almost seem like weird, picky little details. But this is the point, to impress upon them the idea that you need to have a substitute who, who exactly fits in your place. There'd be no leftover. If there's any leftover, you have to burn it. It has to be completely consumed one way or the other, right? The point is that the victim and the family being saved by the victim's sacrifice need to be as closely linked as possible. There's one other picture, one other thing about the picture of deliverance we see here that I want to point out. And it's this fascinating little detail about changing the calendar. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Chapter 12, verse 1. This month is to be for you the first month. It wasn't the first month, but it's going to be the first month now. Their calendar has changed. What, what's, the, what's the symbolism here is that life is starting fresh. This is the picture of being born anew, being born again. From the point of the Lord's deliverance, that's the point at which life begins. That's the point at which the calendar begins. One of the other interesting things about this is every single day should be understood in reference to this event. This event should be something you think about every single day. Because the reason this day is this day and not this month is because of this event, right? You see that? How it's supposed to touch everything about us. Second, we see here a serious call to faith. Serious call to faith. Israel must exercise faith to be delivered from this 10th plague. This is one of the things that's different than the other plagues. In all the other plagues where Israel had been spared, the Lord distinguished them. Now, in some of the plagues, Israel suffered as well. But in the ones where Egypt suffered and Israel did not, the Lord distinguished. He knew where the Israelites lived. He knew which houses were theirs. He didn't need blood to remind him, oh, this is an Israelite house. I better not, better not make a mistake and kill somebody in there. No. Throughout the other plagues, he showed very well that he knew exactly where they lived. For instance, in the, in the ninth plague where darkness covers everywhere, it doesn't cover the Israelites' houses. So in the plague right before this, he knows which houses are theirs. Okay? So what God is saying here is that you need to put your faith in my provision of blood, publicly, smearing it on your doors. Why? Again, the Lord doesn't say, when I see you, but when I see the blood. He's trying to press upon them again. The blood is vital. Something has to satisfy the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. God also wants them to have an ongoing spur to faith. And that's why he makes this an ongoing yearly celebration, right? Through remembrance. God wants them to always remember this. And so he gives them detailed instructions about how do you commemorate this every year, right? And they're very detailed instructions. You read this and you're like, oh, whoa, we better pay attention here. And that's exactly the point. You should pay attention. This is serious stuff. As a matter of fact, in part of of chapter 12 that I didn't read, it says that if you don't Eat this meal the way God says, you're to be cut off from Israel. That's a big deal. In matters of salvation, the Lord says, you must follow my way. You're not free to improvise. Here is the way salvation can be achieved. 
come in this way or you can't come at all, right? He gives very specific details. This is serious. Pay attention is the point. The symbolism is interesting too. It's supposed to spark questions in the children. Don't you love that? The, the, the Lord expects children to say, what does this mean? The Lord does these intriguing things that should cause the children to say, what does this mean? Why? So the parents will have to tell the story over and over and over again. See, it's good for the children and the parents. <laughs> Any pastor I know in a church that does children's sermons, maybe some of you grew up in churches where the kids come down and they do a little children's sermon, I'm telling you, most adults, that's the, that's the message that they get. The other sermon kind of goes over their head. The, the children's sermon is often more effective for the adults than the regular sermon that's supposed to be for the adults. It's always that way. To tell your children this story over and over again. See, God's making it in such a way that you will have to live in this story. This story will come to dominate your conversation. It'll be something you have to tell your children. And I don't know about you, but I found... The best way for me to understand something is to try to explain it to somebody. I've learned this actually my senior year in college when I started, I was going to this Christian fellowship and the pastor who was helping us, he left, went to another state and the the other people in the group said, Kevin, why don't you lead the Bible study? And I didn't know hardly anything, but I'm telling you most everything I've ever learned, it's because I had to teach it to somebody. And I had to figure out how to explain it. It's one thing to be a theological parakeet and just repeat what you've said. It's another thing to explain it to your children. Because if you don't really understand it, you can't explain it to your children. You can't translate it into another language unless you understand it. You can just repeat what you've heard, but try explaining it to children. Right? That's why you should all serve in children's ministry at your church. You should. It'll be good for you. Not just because they need it. It's good for you. It's good for you. Um, the, the outsiders are welcome. I, I don't have time to talk about all this stuff. I, I do want to make this point, last point about faith. Faith is necessary, but not blind faith. The, God, when, when God told them to put the blood on their doors, this is a way of saying, express faith. Put your faith in me and my provision, right? But it's not just blind faith. It comes in a context of nine other plagues where God said, I'm going to do this, and then he did it. So what you need to understand is for the Israelites at this point to not trust the Lord, to not exercise faith in the Lord would be more unreasonable, more unreasonable than to, than, than to I, I kind of lost myself in the, in the wording there. It would be more unreasonable for them to withhold faith We often think that faith and reason don't go together. Listen, all knowledge, all knowledge is based on faith. You're trusting something always. And, And it's worth questioning whether it takes more faith to disbelieve than to believe. For the Israelites at this point, it would have taken more faith to disbelieve. That's why Pharaoh is is described as somebody who hardened his heart. God had made it abundantly clear that he was God. And the only explanation for why Pharaoh didn't respond to that is he hardened his heart. He said, I will not, I will not submit to what is abundantly clear. Don't ever think that you need to pit faith against reason. Faith goes beyond reason, but it's not against it. It would be unreasonable for them to not have faith here. All right, finally, we have an invitation to behold the lamb and adore him. 
Think about this feast. Just meditate, if you will, on this a little bit. We need to gaze upon Jesus as he's pictured in this feast. Think about what God has done here. He's called his people to celebrate this Passover meal every year for a couple of reasons. One, to remember God's faithfulness. And you find all through the Psalms, through the prophets, Israel forever is making reference back to this event, this great deliverance. Right? To remember God is faithful. Remembrance and faith are intimately linked in the Bible. But second, it's to be a way to remind them that God's true desire was for table fellowship, not just to deliver them from Egypt. So they're given a meal to help them remember that God has more in store for them than just delivering them from Egypt. But third, he wants to increase their hunger for the true Lamb of God who was to come. The gospel, I've said this before, I'll say it again, the gospel is God to the rescue. And that's a beautiful picture here. Again, Moses and Aaron do not have anything to do with this plague. You, you, and, and it looks like, it looks like the plagues haven't worked, right? Where this ends in, in chapter 11, um, I didn't read these verses, but what happens in chapter 11, Moses delivers this message um, and then he storms out furious. It says that in chapter 11, verse 8. He storms out furious. It's like he's done. Um, it looks like the nine plagues have failed. Moses is stormed out furious. And that's when God says, now stand back and watch what I'm going to do. Salvation comes and human beings are not part of it. God comes to the rescue himself. And he comes to the rescue when it looks like all is lost. But two points of application, I guess. When you think about finding yourself and how does this give us a sense of identity and teach us what it means to follow God. Two points. The first is this is a meal for pilgrims. Isn't it fascinating? They're supposed to eat this meal dressed and ready to go. But notice they're to slaughter the lamb at twilight. Okay? The end of the day. For the Jews, the day ended at, 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 at sundown. Okay? They're supposed to eat this at the end of the day when they should be dressed for bed. But they're actually dressed for the beginning of the day. This is a really interesting thing. Um, the meal takes place in the evening, but the people are to eat it dressed like it's the morning, and they're starting out for the day. The point is, the point is, this is a meal for pilgrims. That God's people, God's people, do not find their rest here and now. God's people eat this meal ready to be sent out. We eat this meal ready to be sent out. Second point, when you think about what does it mean for me to follow Jesus and enter into a relationship with God, salvation by grace brings peace and rest. And we see a beautiful picture of that here too. See, think about this. The lamb has already been slaughtered. The blood has already been applied to the door while they're sitting inside feasting. In other words, death has already taken place and those inside are benefiting from it. The death has taken place, and those inside are benefiting from it, right? Death is all around, but inside, they're feasting. See, the death of Christ brings true peace. A peace that you can't find anywhere else. When all around, right, when all around my soul gives way, here is my hope and stay. Right? There's an anchor, there's peace, 
There's a place of communing and feasting with God that can only come because the blood has been covered, has covered you. When the blood has covered you, you can sit inside feasting while everything around is falling apart. While there's wailing like there's never been heard. But again, the rest of the image, you're dressed and ready to go. And in a few minutes, you're going out there. But see, Christian, Christianity is about being covered by the blood so that you can feast and then be sent out. Right? This is always the picture. This is why in worship, you come together, we worship, we behold the Lamb. It's why we sing so many hymns in RUF that are to basically a way for us to gaze upon Christ by faith. We don't sing a lot of songs about, Lord, this is what I want to do. Lord, this is what I want to do. Because we know that the key to living the Christian life is to gaze upon the lamb who was slain. And then we have, we're sent out. We don't stay in here. We don't live in here, right? We're sent back. You're sent back to roommate situations that are difficult. How do you deal with that? What does it mean for you to feast and rest in Christ in the midst of the chaos of the world? where God has called you to be, right? So we come inside, we're covered by the blood, we feast, but we feast with our sandals on, ready to be sent out. It's a, a, a beautiful picture. So the question tonight is, do you know what it means to be covered by the blood? Have you been covered by the blood? Have you, it, it's not enough to say, wow, that's a really cool story. The question is, have you appropriated this? Have you said yes? I, 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 want, I, I want to put faith in this substitute, right? And, and then the question is, uh, do you know what it means to, to feast and to rest and to commune with him? It's not enough, again, just to say the blood. The blood is important. It's vital. It's the first step. But it's not, it's not, it's not all there is. And maybe you're a Christian and you say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian. I know I'm covered by the blood. But do you know what it means to feast with God? Have you understood that his point is not just to cover you by the blood, but to come and sup with you, right? This is why Revelation says this very same thing, right? It's all through the Bible from beginning to end. Do you understand that? Don't be content with just having the blood on your doorposts. God wants to feast with you, right? And then be prepared because he's going to send you somewhere. And we're going to find the journey that the Israelites go on is 40 years and winding back. It seems like God doesn't know what the heck he's doing. Um, but this is why, you know, Martin Luther, as Martin Luther said it so, so well, we may not know where he leads, but well do we know our guide. That's what's going on here. God is saying, you don't know where I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you to the promised land. But listen, what matters is that you know me. And here's what I want to teach you about me. I'm committed to covering you. I'm committed to feasting with you, enjoying rich relationship with you. So let's start with that. Let's pray together.